Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a Big Heads Media Podcast. Tonight, the Amityville story goes from true crime to the paranormal, from the DeFeos to the Lutzes. It's Amityville Part 2. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. And welcome to episode 10 of season 3, which also means it's the final episode of the season, which also means we are probably, not probably, we are chugging along with part 2 of our season 3 finality, which is of course Amityville, New York. I don't even know why I told you that, I just told you that in the intro. Here's a double intro. But we have a lot to get to Tonight, this is going to be 
I don't know if it'll be a massive episode. I always kind of say that just by judging by the notes, and then sometimes it's not any bigger than it normally is. It just depends on how much I have to talk about and how fast I go. But really incredible stuff coming up in this episode. We're going to go through the story of the Lutzes, almost with a fine-tooth comb, but not so fine-tooth that I have to talk about it for like three hours. But fine tooth, fine tooth enough. And then we've got some new stories, which came together really quickly. I think I found all three of them in like the span of two minutes, maybe. And they all talk about finding, uh, just finding things. They're all kind of like, but just artifacts that people have uncovered over the past couple of weeks. And then we're going to talk more about Amityville in the Your Small Town Secret section as we talk to Jason Cowan, who knew George Lutz later in George's life and have a pretty amazing half an hour or so long conversation with him that if you are looking, if you've ever looked into the Amityville story or uh, have gotten down its rabbit hole. There might be a lot of things in that interview that you did not know before. And we get into this a couple of other things, like some personal experiences and all of that. It's a great interview. It's probably one of the most fun, most informative ones that I've ever done for this show. And uh, it, was a, it was a blast. I'm glad it's going to be on here. And then we're going to be uh, done with season season three and episode 10 of season three and the season and be gearing up for the return of Season 4. I'll talk about Season 4 a little bit here when everything is wrapped up and finished. So we're going to go ahead, before we get into uh, the meat of the show, we're going to listen to a couple of promos. One from uh, Big Heads Media Podcast, Forest Ramble, and the other one from Fireside Phantoms. So take a listen, and I will be back in just a little bit like I always am. Hello, I'm Rich Ferraro. I host the Forest Ramble, the intelligent Nottingham Forest podcast. Every month I'm joined by Stephen Topless. Hello. And the Maradon the Midlands. Hello. To review and discuss what's been happening at the city ground. We provide match reports, sharing our thoughts on what we have seen. And our contributors, Baz. Hello. And Jeremy. Hello. Chip in with analysis and nostalgia. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, search for Forest Ramble on social media, or visit www.forestramble.com. Hi, I'm Carol. And I'm Holly. And we are the hosts of Fireside Phantoms. On our podcast, we will delight in telling you stories of the strange, twisted, dark, and foreboding. Creepy, crawly things slinking up your leg. Ghostly hands reaching out from beyond the grave. And we will ask hard-hitting questions like, Can Slender Man fit into my skinny jeans? Who is Wrinkles the Clown? And how can he make your child's next birthday party special? Why shouldn't we invite the black-eyed kids in? What really is going on at your creepy neighbor's house? And is it okay to peek inside? And many, many more. So join us and our forest friends as we gather around a warm and crackling campfire. This is Fireside Phantoms. All right, all that is done and out of the way. 
And we're going to move on with tonight's episode as we talk about Amityville some more and the story of the Lutz family haunting. So this is where it gets really crazy. So before I get into this, I feel I have to preference a couple of things. I reiterate this in the interview with Jason as well. This story is what I would describe as a quagmire. I I can't even remember. I might touch this a little bit in the last episode, but it's really hard, nay I say it impossible, to find a book or a documentary or an episode of a TV show that is kind of a nice gray area that just says, here's the story as we know it, make up your mind. Which is what I'm attempting to do tonight, as, as best as I can. Also, my discount Staples chair is starting to creak, so I apologize. I might have to break out some WD-40 or something and lube it up. But that's the way it is. Like You can't watch a documentary or read a book without a bunch of people saying, no, this is wrong. You know, There's so much. There's too many voices, too many hands in the soup, as we say in the interview coming up, that to make this just like a nice neutral neutral kind of story to talk about. It's very decisive. But so what I'm going to do with this episode is I'm going to talk about the story as best we know it from what it was when it came out. Obviously, like it happened in it happened in 75 into 76. So we're talking like 45 years of this story being around and just stuff being piled on top of it. So what I decided to do even though it's, you know, a lot of people will tell you no, is I read the Jay Anson book, The Amityville Horror, because it's the best, I think, timeline that we have closest to when everything happened. And yes, I'm sure there are many things in that book that were exaggerated by Anson. Um, so take... Just keep that in mind when I go through this, because I'm literally just going to go through a timeline, the best that we know it, of things that that book says happened to the family. Uh, an approximate timeline. like the, That's the way the book is actually divided up. It's divided up by, the chapters are like days, every day. And I was like, there's no way they knew, like, you know, they, kept, they, they had that good of a memory where they could have kept that. So I'm sure those are just like approximate dates going back through the story and being like, oh, well, it must, it happened after this, so it must have happened on this day. So just kind of using the days as best we know them as a divider, just like the book did, I'm going to go through and just hit some of the more famous points and maybe some of the more interesting points that you didn't see in the movies and and all that. I actually rewatched the original movie last night. What is it, night? Thursday? Yeah, so... Oh, it's not Thursday anymore. Now it's Friday morning. But I used to have that that movie on DVD, and I watched it all the time. And it's the same old story. I, I lent the DVD to someone to watch it. Now you haven't seen it since. So, Vanessa, if you're listening, I want my DVD back from, like, 13 years ago. Actually, I bought it on iTunes, so don't bother. But, like, I went back and watched it. I used to watch this movie all the time. And I watched it. I'm like, I don't remember any of this stuff. Like, if anyone's ever seen it, like, all the stuff with uh, the priest and all that, like, I remember him being in it, but I don't remember him being such a recurring character, you know? And I'm like, 
I don't remember any of this stuff. Almost to the point where it was like, did I have some weird cut of the movie where they just cut all the priest scenes, all the Catholic scenes, like, out of it? Or I just probably don't remember any any of that stuff. Like, I don't remember the mayor from Jaws being in there. Or any of that stuff. Or uh, the guy that played uh, Bennings in The Thing is in that movie for, like, ten seconds, which made me smile. But, you know, there's a lot of... that. That movie does touch on some stuff... And it's always been an okay movie, in my opinion. Like I used, like I said, I used to watch it pretty regularly, and I but I just had not, I've not seen it in like thirteen years. But I just wanted to watch it to kind of refresh myself about what it says versus what's in the book versus what other people have said. And then I used another book called The Amityville. No, wait, Possessed: The Amityville Enigma, which kind of goes into something we'll talk about later, but. Uh, it was a good book in the sense that it gave some really nice early history on the house and on the surrounding area, some old newspaper articles, which we'll get into very soon, and stuff like that. It's a quick read. Quick read. Like, it's a 102-page book or 106-page book, but at, like, page 72, it's just pictures of the house. Just pictures of the house. And not, like creepy crime scene photos of the house or, you know, houses from the investigation. Just pictures of the house as it appeared normally. Um, which I was like, well, you know, a lot of it was actually kind of interesting just to see the layout of the house. and get, It gives you a really good idea of what the house looked like at the time. Um, I will warn you, some of the images contain the most graphic 70s wallpaper I have ever seen. So just, you know, watch out for that. But it's in the show notes. Both of them, the Jay Anson book, and those are in the show notes. So I guess I told you all of that to tell you this. I am attempting to tell the story as close as it was to the time that it happened. And I think the best way to kind of do that is to just go through uh, the Amityville Horror book and a couple of other resources that helped me get a little close to it. And uh, just realize that there might be some grains of salt that perhaps you should take. So with all that out of the way, let's talk about the Lutz haunting at 112 Ocean Avenue. The story of the Amityville house did not stop with the DeFeos. In December of 1975, the Lutz family moved into their dream home. Not only was it their dream home, but they got much of the DeFeo's belongings, and they got it all at a steal. 28 days later, the family would flee in terror from the house and never return to it. This is where the story goes from true crime to the paranormal. The house that was once at 112 Ocean Avenue was built over an existing foundation in 1927 by the Moynihan family. Before that, the property has some his interesting history. A New York Times article from sometime in the late 1800s reports a story of dead babies being found in the Amityville Creek. A woman with the last name of Ireland was later arrested for perverting nature. Quote unquote. One of those old-timey law names. Why is this interesting? because it was a woman by the name of Annie Ireland who owned and later sold the property to the Moynihans in the 20s. There does not seem to be any concrete evidence that Annie is indeed the woman caught for disposing of illegal abortions in the waters around Amityville, but it does make one think. 
And there's a couple, like I said, these are the uh, articles I was talking about a couple minutes ago. Um, I attempted to sign up for newspapers.com and get a, uh, a, not a subscription, like a membership, so I could maybe try to find these old articles, but their site has been acting a little wonky. I think I'm signed into it now, but I didn't get a chance to sit down and maybe search to see if I could find them. I do have a couple that are reprinted in the uh, Possession uh, Amityville Enigma book. That's not the only news article from around the time about strange happenings in Amityville. The article in question is entitled, There's a Haunted House. And I was going to read the article, but on, on, on air, if you will. But there's only a scan in the book, and it's kind of hard to read. But I was able to kind of fumble through, but I'm not going to attempt to fumble through it again. It basically talks about a house. It doesn't name the address or say that it's 100% 112, but it does say it is uh, a valuable property that's on the lake, half a mile from shore. I love how sometimes it's a lake, sometimes it's a canal, sometimes it's a creek. And uh, on the other side of that lake, there was a hermit who lived in a hut for like 27 years. And they don't really get into what haunted it, but I think they're. I think the article posits that like he was a hermit because he used to be a soldier and his wife died, and that made him decide to go live in this hut. And then he shot himself, and that was just weird because most people around the area don't shoot themselves; they die of old age. But that's basically what they get into. They never like come out and say, "Oh, it's haunted by the ghost of this old hermit." They just kind of let you make that decision. There has also been some debate to the idea that the house was built on an old Native American burial ground. This was uh, concluded by famed ghost hunter Hans Holzer. Although this has never been 100% confirmed, there is yet another news article from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle dated March 30th of 1895, and the article is titled Indian Relics Found at Amityville. And this one I can read because uh, the book transcribed it all. Amityville, Long Island, March 30th. Workmen engaged in digging a cellar for a new house to be erected on the property of E.W. Bordet on Ocean Avenue in the village have discovered several skeletons, some of them in good state of preservation. They are believed to be the remains of Indians of the Iroquois tribe, who long ago had a burying ground in the vicinity. On the same property, which up to a few years ago was only an immense mound of clam and oyster shells, trees have been found and uh, are believed to have been set out by the same tribe. They are peculiar in their growth, foliage, and the nature of the wood, the species of which no one in this locality can identify. The Iroquois own vast tracts of land in this vicinity and at and at Woodsboro, on the far Rockaway branch of the Long Island Railroad, is a monument erected to one of the chiefs of the Iroquois on the land formerly owned by him. The stone commemorates a lifelong friendship between uh, Kululo and Abraham Hewlett, the purchaser of the ground on which the Indian lived. Demonologist Ed Warren has said in TV interviews that uh, where the boathouse now stands, there was once a building where Native American prisoners were kept and possibly tortured and just kind of left to die. Even though neither of these claims can be confirmed, they are not of hurt they are not unheard of. It must be noted that probably many burial sites have not been discovered or documented, as well as the treatment of Native Americans, especially in the eighteen hundreds, is just more food for esoteric thought. Whatever its origins and the secret it holds, the property is real. 
and on December 18, 1975, newlyweds George and Kathy Lutz moved into the house at 112 Ocean Avenue. They had purchased the house and some of the DeFeo's possessions, like I think some of their uh, washers and dryers, some of their air conditioners, like all the furniture was kind of in there. Um, and they just, you know, he paid, a, or George paid a little extra and just got all the stuff that the DeFeo's had left behind, including their beds, for around $80,000. The new couple, along with Kathy's three children, Daniel, nine, Chris, seven, and Missy, five, made the move from Deer Park, New York. The price was considerably less than the other houses in the upscale part of Amityville, around fifty dollars to $60,000 cheaper. George was the owner of a land surveying company called William H. Perry Incorporated, so he knew a good deal when he saw one. The last time the house sold was in 2019 for $650,000, just to give you a little idea of how much stuff is in Amityville now. The family had found quite the steal. It was only after Kathy fell head over heels for the house that the realtor disclosed the details of the DeFeo massacre. This didn't seem to deter the Lutzes from buying the home. The next day, Kathy had a priest she knew stop by to bless the new house. This man's name was Father James Pecoraro. As he was blessing the home, he made his way upstairs to what was now the Lutz's sewing room, but had been the bedroom of Mark and John DeFeo. As the priest blessed the room, he suddenly felt the temperature drop in the room. Even though it was winter, he found it odd for the room to suddenly get so cold. As he continued, Pecoraro heard a deep-tempered voice yell at him from behind to get out, it bellowed. The priest then claimed that he was slapped across the face by an unseen force. Later that day, Father Pecoraro was visiting his mother. On his way back to the rectory, his car hood suddenly flew up and smashed into the windshield. Then his right door flew open as well. After that, the car stalled. He called the rectory and, was with, and with the help of another priest, got his car to a shop but was not able to start. And that was just day one. So a little bit about Father Pecoraro. Um, his name wasn't known for the first couple years he wanted to remain anonymous. And over the years, he, he kind of backed away from the story a little bit. Um, he's no longer with us. But I think I found uh, just one of the stray little news interviews that you kind of read and you don't really, like, oh, there's not enough here for me to really use this for the show. And I heard that he claimed that he only only called the family one time um, and that he didn't really know them. But I don't know if I believe that because there's a, there's a picture in uh, the Amityville Enigma book that is reported to be uh, Father Pecoraro with with Kathy's kids before they even bought the house. So I'm pretty sure he knew them, and I don't know if he just didn't want the attention, if the church didn't want him to get the attention or what was going on, but a lot of stuff with Father Pecoraro is has gone back and forth. So I won't touch on him a lot from the like I'm not even sure about the whole car incident thing. I, so I'm just gonna kinda leave him there. I will mention him a couple of times, but I won't get too heavily into him just because you can't really corroborate a lot of what was going on. Over the next twenty seven days, 
the odd and frightening events would go on almost relentlessly. I have developed a timeline of events based off the approximate days in the J. Anson book, The Amityville Horror. So I'm just going to go through them. This is just a uh, list of, of, you know, the day, the approximate day they think stuff happened and what happened. And then we'll get to, uh, you know, we'll go from there. December 19th. George awoke on the first night in the house at 3.15 a.m. And this is something I want to talk about. Um, I guess he did look into it, the police report and stuff, and they uh, surmised that the murders happened at, at around 3.15 a.m. So there was a time of death. I know in the last episode I was kind of like, oh, they didn't really care about a lot of that because it was such a cut-and-dry case. And I mentioned that maybe... Maybe... um. Ronnie got away with it because he, you know, did it during the day or something and waited to, you know, uh, unveil the bodies, the murders. But it still, I guess, kind of could have worked. He might have been able to have just kind of held everyone captive in the house throughout the day and then at 3.15 a.m. Uh, go back and shoot everyone if he were was able to do it by himself. But that was kind of a, a mistake on my part. 3.15 a.m., and I knew that, and I guess I just used the wrong terminology. I just kind of had a brain fart. So if you're going back and listening to that first part of this, and that doesn't really make a lot of sense, uh, that's my fault, and I apologize. There was a knock at his front door that woke him up. He walked into the sewing room, which overlooked the backyard as well as the boathouse. He noticed the family dog, Harry, was nowhere to be seen. What George did notice was a shadow in the darkness. He thought someone was out there. George opened the window and shouted at the intruder. Harry the dog also emerged from the darkness, but could not do much since he was tied up on a lead. Mr. Lutz had no choice but to put on some clothes, go out in the cold, and flush this person out himself. However, when he got outside, he found no one, just Harry, who kept frantically barking. George also discovered the boathouse door was now unlocked and swinging open in the December wind. The boat was new and one of George's most prized possessions, so he was sure he had locked the boathouse before he went to bed. He locked the boathouse again and tried to go back to sleep. December 20 to the 21st. Every member of the family had started to act a little differently. The changes were small but noticeable, mostly some uh, noted irritability. It was George, however, that was hit the hardest. To him, the children seemed to have become more belligerent. In one of those early days in the house, both Kathy and him had become so enraged that the children had broken a window in the playroom that they were hit with a leather strap and a wooden spoon. George also was finding it harder and harder to keep warm and started constantly throwing log after log onto the fire. Even though the thermostat read at 75 degrees, he just couldn't get warm. December 22nd. This would be the day that Kathy would start to feel touched by something not there and also smell perfume when the touching, when the sensation was happening. The odd sensation started off friendly, at first almost as a caress, but as time went on it became more aggressive. She would often feel this happen in the kitchen, which is where she was on December 22nd as the kids ran up to her telling her to come upstairs. In one of the upstairs bathrooms, the toilet was filled with a black substance which smelled of decay. They would soon discover the black goo was in the other upstairs bathroom as well. In order to deter the smell, George and Kathy went around opening the windows. 
Kathy went into the sewing room to open the window only to find the room filled with flies. They weren't sure how they got there since it was the middle of winter. After that, the flies would intermittently show up in that room for no reason at all. Later that night, George once again woke up at 3.15. He wandered downstairs only to find the front door torn from its hinges. December 24th, Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve, Father Pecoraro called the Lutzes, even though he seemed to be coming down with quite the flu. He called the house and talked to George for a while. The conversation turned to the sewing room. The priest gave George a bit of advice. He told George and his family to stay out of that room. After that, the phone began to crackle and distort. This would happen every time the family tried to get in touch with Father Pecoraro or vice versa. Furthermore, the priest would grow sick any time he tried to get in touch with them, coming down with the flu several times. He would also develop painful blisters on his hands at one point. December 25th, Christmas. Once again at 3.15, George Lutz awoke and went out to check the boathouse. While outside, he turned and looked up at the house. He could see Missy looking out of her second floor bedroom window. Behind her was what appeared to be a pig with glowing red eyes. This pig, according to Missy, was called Jody and would at times appear to her as an angel and a little boy. December 27th. It was on the 27th that Kathy discovered the red room. The finished basement had a few closets. Kathy was using one of these as extra pantry space to store canned goods and such. While putting away groceries, she bumped into another shelf and to her surprise it moved. It was a secret door. Behind the door was not much more than a small storage space. George thought it may have been a bomb shelter, and many have speculated that it may have been part of the original house. There would be times that this room would, get off, would give off bad smells, and Harry the dog would not go near it. And I found a little itty bitty YouTube video, it's only a couple minutes long, I linked it in the show notes, of someone showing us the red room, the actual red room, because there's not a lot of color pictures of it. There's some black and white pictures that you can find, but I don't know, you know, it's just like it's two minutes long and she just goes in there and she goes, here's the red room, and she opens up the little secret door and sits in it. And it is indeed painted red, but it looks like they tried to scrape off a bunch of the paint. I don't know when it was taken. It looked like it was probably taken sometime in the, maybe the late 80s or early 90s. But it's an interesting, if you actually want to see what that room looked like in color, it's, you know, it's a couple minutes and it's definitely worth the watch. December 28th. One Christmas, Kathy had gotten George a large, ornate ceramic lion. It was on this day that Kathy noticed the lion had moved several inches from where it had been sitting since they uh, moved in. Later in the day, George tripped over the lion as it made its way into the middle of the living room. The next day, he had cuts on his ankle in the shape of teeth marks. After another incident with the lion moving, they threw it out, only for it to end up back in the house, and no one knows how. The kids said they never did it. January 1st. It was one minute after midnight on the new year. After the kids had gone to bed, Kathy had become hypnotized in the fireplace, which often happens when you gaze into flames. She gasped in horror as she saw what was described as a demon with a white peaked hood manifest in the fire. George saw it as well. Later that night when Kathy and George were in bed, they were suddenly awoke by a raging wind. All the windows in the room were open and the sheets had been blown off the bed. 
Going out into the hallway, they found all the windows and doors open, all but the door to Missy's room. The house was now frigid due to the open windows and doors, but when George opened Missy's door, he found the room to be hot. Not warm, but very hot. He also noticed Missy's rocking chair rocking back and forth on its own. Missy, however, was sound asleep. Later that evening, around 10 p.m., both George and Kathy saw the beady, red-glowing eyes of an enormous pig outside the living room window. The next morning, George found fresh tracks in the snow of hoofprints. Hoofprints of a pig, not of a demon, a pig. Still creepy, but a pig. January 4th. On the night of the 4th, George heard what could only be described as a marching band playing and parading through the house. It only got louder as he went downstairs. He could hear it plain as day, but saw nothing. When he returned to the bedroom, he observed Kathy levitating two feet above the bed. She had been asleep the whole time and wasn't even aware that it was happening. January 6th. On the night of the 6th, George got a sudden craving for a beer and decided to go to Henry's bar. This was the same bar that Ronnie DeFeo had stormed into the night he murdered his family. George had gone into the bar before and had been told just how much he himself looked like Ronnie. Kathy was asleep, and when George went to shake her awake, he once again saw her levitating above the bed. He pulled her towards him and got her back down on the bed and woke her up. He discovered her face was ingrained with deep lines and wrinkles. Kathy would also later suffer from strange welts that would burn. Both times, these strange ailments lasted for about a day and then just disappeared, as mysteriously as they had come. January 8th. This is the day the famous green slime was seen. The children were up on the third floor. Kathy went to check on them and gave out a scream. The scream made George race up the stairs to investigate. In the third floor playroom, there was a green jello-like substance oozing out of the cracks and down the walls. George actually tasted it and said even though it looked like jello, it had no taste whatsoever. There would be occasions after this where the green slime could be seen coming out of keyholes in the doors. January 10th. On the day of the 10th, it started the storm hard. As the icy storm raged outside, Kathy suddenly remembered that she had left the windows open in their bedroom. Just a crack to let the room air out. She asked Danny to run upstairs and close them, which he did. However, a painful scream came from the upstairs seconds later. One of the windows had come down straight on his hands, but the window came down with so much force that it flattened his fingers. Even with George pulling with all his might, the window would not budge until it seemed to just let go by itself. Upon taking Danny to the hospital, they found he had no broken bones. January 14th, the final day. The family had made up its mind that it was time to leave the house. They gathered up Harry and hopped into the van that the Lutzes owned. Even though the van had plenty of gas, it would not start. George got out and popped the hood. It was at this moment that another huge storm immediately pounded down on them. With no running car, the family reluctantly fled back into the house. The phones by this point were not working, which means they couldn't call anyone. It was as if the house had them trapped there. 
As the family stayed inside, the temperature began to fall and fall until there was no real heat in the house. Almost as if like the power went off and the heat wasn't working and the temperature just dropped. Later in the day, the storm and the coldness relented and the house started to warm up again. This welcome sensation did not last long. The boys ran into their parents' bedroom, scared out of their minds. They said that a faceless monster was in their room and had tried to grab them. Moments later, Harry started barking madly at something on the third floor stairs. When George went to get him, he saw what the dog was barking at. It was the figure clad in white, the same one from the fireplace. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. With two entities now showing themselves, the family, including the dog, ran back out the front door and back into the van. This time, the van started with no trouble, and George wasted no time in leaving 112 Ocean Avenue. The Lutz family never returned for any of their belongings. The house, their possession, George's boat, were all sold at auction. George even ended up selling off his share of the business. Soon after, the family moved to California. However, this would not be the end of the Lutz story. Not by a long shot, so... After uh, the boom here, we're going to come back and talk about what happened after the haunting, uh, the investigation by the Warrens and all that great stuff. So I'm going to take a little break, which you're not even going to know about because it's not going to be you know, in the show. I'm going to edit it out. And then we'll come back and we'll uh, finish up the story. So hold on for just a couple of seconds and I'll be right back with it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And we're back and let's move on with this story. We're getting there. We're getting to the uh the uh what do you want to say? What's the word? It just went away. It's gone. The home stretch, not a word, a phrase. The home stretch of this story. On March 6th, 1976, an anchorman from Channel 5 News named Marvin Scott along with Ed and Lorraine Warren, proceeded to do an investigation of 112 Ocean Avenue. The investigation yielded some interesting finds. Originally, George Lutz was going to be present for the investigation, but at the last moment decided to just meet the team at a nearby pizza parlor and give them the keys. The Amityville investigation team consisted of Ed and Lorraine Warren, Marvin Scott, Carlos Osis, the president of the American Society for Psychical Research, Alex Tannis, Dr. Brian Riley, a parapsychologist, as well as his wife, Alberta, Mary Downey, a psychic, two cameramen who both had shot in combat conditions, and uh, a few people from Duke University. During the investigation, some interesting things did happen. When they first arrived, Ed went down into the basement. This was the, he often did this first on investigations, like this was his kind of go-to play, because he always said that the basement was, if there's anything dark in the house, the basement is where it's going to be. In the basement, he said he felt great changes in pressure, as well as a series of electrical shocks. Meanwhile, Lorraine went upstairs, and also felt odd changes in pressure. Both of the cameramen had heart palpitations. Lorraine has said in interviews that all the men that were there that night had some sort of heart problem. Even Ed had a heart attack sometime after the investigation. During the first of three seances held that night, many of the participants grew ill and had to leave the room. Mary Downey felt personally threatened by a presence in the house. Mrs. Riley felt that there was a presence of something upstairs. And this is also where um, Lorraine kind of proclaimed that this was one of the the most haunted thing places, most energy-filled places they had ever been. Then, of course, there's the Ghost Boy photograph. George Lutz unveiled this photograph on the Merv Griffin show before the movie was about to come out. The picture was taken by an infrared static camera on the second floor. The photo depicts what appears to be a child peeking out of one of the bedrooms. Many have claimed that this is one of the younger DeFeo boys, or even Jody himself. Others have said that it's just someone's kid who was there that night. Even though, as I mean, it's pretty easy to debunk that. There weren't any kids there that night. It wouldn't even have made sense. It wasn't like, oh, we couldn't get a babysitter. I gotta take my kid to the haunted house. Nah, I don't think that happened. One possible explanation is that this is actually a man named Paul Bartz, who was there that night. The boy's glowing eyes are nothing but a glare due to the infrared film, and their shirts kind of match. However, the shirts don't match 100% completely, and I don't believe that Bart has ever come forward about it, 
So this is kind of a, a pretty reasonable explanation. He was there that night. Uh, there's pictures of him. You can contrast and compare if you just kind of do a Google search. And it might have been like him kind of crouched down in a doorway. But I don't understand, like, if it was him, it, I feel like it would have been really easy for him to go, yeah, that was me, or yeah, that wasn't me. And I haven't been able to find anything that of him ever coming forward saying yay or nay on the subject. And I did kind of look at both the pictures. The shirts aren't quite the same. Like, they're both plaid shirts. These are not color photos either. either. And, uh, hit, you know, like, the lines seem thicker on one shirt and thinner on the other shirt. It'd be great if we had, like, color photos so that we could see exactly what the colors of the shirt were. But it is a creepy picture nonetheless, and it will be in the show notes, and you can take a look at it and uh, see for yourself. Since the Lutz family left the home, there has been little activity reported about the house. I'm not saying there hasn't been any, I'm just saying no one's talked about it. It eventually changed owners a couple of times, and the address has changed, and the infamous eye windows have been removed. The red room has also been torn out when the basement underwent remodeling. The reports of non-activity by future homeowners, along with some bad publicity, has led many to claim that it's nothing but a hoax, perpetrated by the Lutz family to make money. And if that's true, they didn't really make that much. All in all, they made $260,000 off the movie and book while Jay Anson, the author of the Amityville Horror, made millions. Both Kathy and George took lie detector tests as a stipulation to have the movie released. Like it was, I guess it was going to kind of be, I don't want to say like a publicity thing, but it probably was. They were both going to get lie detector tests, and they were supposed to come out on the Merv Griffin show. They didn't. They were printed later in a, in a magazine or a tabloid. They were given polygraph tests by the two leading technicians in the country at the time. George was given his test by uh, Chris Goguez, and Kathy was given hers by Michael Rice. Both passed their test. And I have linked in the show notes a interview uh, with Ed and Lorraine Warren, which is very interesting to watch. And at the end of that, Lorraine has the host get out the polygraph test results, and he reads through some of the questions and gets into it and just says, you know, everything they seem to have said was truthful. Of course, there have been many ideas put forth as to what caused the activity in the house, such as negative energy from Native American spirits, negative energy from the Red Room itself, and I've always been kind of confused on this, but I I think uh, someone fa found evidence of a well that was also on the property, and I'm not sure if the Red Room was covering that up or what. I think that was supposed to be the idea. And uh, it was said that if they were able to cover up this well, then the activity might stop. But I couldn't find anything super concrete on that, so I didn't get into it that much. Uh, did something manifest because of what happened to the DeFeos? Was the house haunted by the murdered family? Is it possible that the house was never haunted at all, and maybe it was a leftover possessions of the DeFeo family? And that is something I thought about a lot for a long time, was that maybe the reason no one has ever reported any real activity since then is because it was never really the house that was haunted. Maybe it was this, this burst of negative energy coupled with some other things to create this 
this kind of cauldron of activity and it was not the house it was the possessions left over and it just kind of soaked itself into these possessions so that could kind of explain why you know once the once all that was sold off and taken away from the house everything kind of died down but there is kind of another possibility and that is the possible dabblings of the occult brought something out of the house Chris Lutz, who now goes by Chris Quarantino, has maintained that George dabbled in the occult. Perhaps there is some evidence to support this. In Stephen Kaplan's book, The Amityville Conspiracy, he quotes George as saying he knew a man named Ray Buckland. Sure, I knew Ray. We had some interesting conversations about witchcraft, and he ran a museum. Ray Buckland moved to New York from London. He did have a keen interest in the occult, and he did open a museum for witchcraft and magic in New York, later moving it to New Hampshire when it grew too large. Now, it must be noted that Kaplan was the first parapsychologist the Lutzes hired to investigate the house, but bad blood quickly started to flow between the two, between the, the couple and Kaplan, after Kaplan told the press about his investigation, which is something the Lutzes did not want. And then he also came back and said, uh, I'm not a parapsychologist, I'm a vampirologist, and they just didn't have a lot of faith in him. Uh, and it seems that since then, Kaplan had a grudge against the couple and kind of tried to smear them at every turn. So I guess what I'm getting at is, let's say, and we talk about this in the upcoming interview, like, it was the 70s. A lot of these things are coming back into vogue, these these alternative practice practices yoga was coming back and you know transcendental meditation and chaos magic and all of these things were kind of in in vogue at the time so i you know i don't think that if if lutz did dabble in the occult i don't think he was some sort of like you know evil magician as i say i think i even reinterstate that in the interview but he might have had an interest and that in itself is not bad but if you think about it, because I have an interest in the occult, and it's no big deal, but back in the late 70s, early 80s, with the satanic panic just starting to kind of blossom and arrive, if you started saying that someone was into the occult, then that just, that probably just went way, way far to ruin their credibility. But to me, and even to Jason when we talk about him, it's entirely possible that maybe George dabbled a little bit into something that he didn't quite understand, and brought it into the house and that might have stirred some stuff up but no matter what you think about the story both Kathy and George maintain their story about what they experienced up until their deaths Kathy died in 2004 and George in 2006 Daniel, Chris and Missy their three children carry on as well as well as George's daughters from another marriage after uh, he and Kathy got divorced their names are Gabrielle and Noel, and the only reason I mention their names is uh, Jason brings them up in the interview, so I want everyone to be aware of these two other people that I haven't talked about uh, thus far. And really, there we go. That is the story from beginning to the end, as kind of accurately as I think I can tell it, hopefully, uh, of the Amityville Horror, the house at 112 Ocean Avenue, which brings us to the middle of the show... Um, well, maybe not them, yeah. And uh, we're going to... Where? Why do I keep saying we? 
That is that is a season four resolution to quit saying we. There's no one else here. The cat doesn't count. I will be playing some music here for the intermission. I think we're going to go with uh, Something Wicked is the name of this track. When I come back, we'll do the local headlines. said uh, earlier in the show all of the uh, local headlines do share a common theme and they are all kind of old artifacts that have been discovered over the last couple of weeks the first one has been making the rounds i've seen it pop up in a couple of places and this is fisherman baffled over puzzling 60 mystery cubes with bizarre inscriptions from a uk river this comes from the express.co.uk it is written by mill mclaughlin the cubes were found by Will Reed, 38, while he was scouring the area for precious metals with his son. Mr. Reed, from Finham in South Coventry, revealed the objects on his Facebook page as he tried to gain any valuable information about the mysterious objects. The objects are believed to be linked to a Hindu prayer ritual which Mr. Reed discovered while sifting through the river Stow on May 8th. After taking a closer look at the cubes, Mr. Reed and his sons, Jackson 5. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to leave this in Jackson just because it says Jackson 5, like his age, but I read it real quick and I said Jackson 5, like the uh, music group. And Benjamin 7 noticed neat inscriptions were engraved in grids on either side. Mr. Reed said on Facebook, 
We were out magnet fishing as our daily activity in the lockdown, and we were in a relatively isolated spot. At first we found keys and pennies, and other bits of bobs, and we looked down and saw what we thought were tiles. I was live streaming to friends on Facebook, and I bent down and started picking them up. Uh, there are some really cool pictures on this article of the cubes. They've got them kind of all stacked up in a wall and just some close-up pictures. Really neat looking. I also thought they might be rocks. I showed them to the camera, and as I looked back, more and more kept appearing. They were all sorts of stories flying around at first. The cubes really captured people's imaginations. What I learned is that they were of Indian origin, and they show inscriptions for prayers, which take effect, which take effect when they are thrown into the river. After posting the images on social media, Mr. Reed believed the inscriptions are in Sanskrit. Sanskrit is the ritual language related to Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. The cubes also show the mythical diagrams which are used for worship. These diagrams are termed as yantra. And once again, there's some more pictures. Despite the speculation on social media, no date has been placed on the cubes. It is also known, it is also not known why so many were thrown into the river. Mr. Reed has now returned to the spot where he found the cubes and has since found a silver coin, which is also in a picture, I believe. I thought they were using it for scale, but now that I'm reading through the article, I think that was the coin. Mr. Reed added, The more I learn, the stranger it becomes. No one can explain why there were so many cubes found in one place. It feels incredibly unusual to have found so many. I will get them appraised and find out more about them as to how much they are worth. I could be sitting on a, an absolute pool of cash, or they could be worth nothing. But I won't make any decision on what to do with them until I found out more about what they actually are. And the next one is from abc.net.au. Let me see if there's a, an R, a, uh, da, 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 by George Burgess. And this is rare 200-year-old clay pipe depicting thylacine dubbed the Holy Grail of Tasmanian archaeology. And the thylacine, of course, is the Tasmanian tiger, which may or may not be extinct. A 200-year-old clay pipe sold as an unwanted item by a bottle collector at auction has been described as the Holy Grail, quotation marks, of Tasmanian archaeology. The intact pipe has a motif of a Tasmanian tiger and is thought to be one of the earliest European depictions of the extinct creature. Principal archaeologist with Southern Archaeology, Darren Watton, has said that it is a very exciting find. It's hard to contain myself as to how exciting it is, he told Helen Shield on ABC Radio Hobart. In terms of Tasmanian archaeology, it's the Holy Grail. Clay pipes were used before cigarettes and were mass-produced through the molds and designed to be used and discarded. The pipes were generally made in the United Kingdom or other parts of Europe and imported to the colonies, but this pipe was handcrafted locally using river clay. It's got some really special attributes, which we don't usually see, he said. It indicates it was a local person making it, perhaps for themselves. It could have also been a convict. The pipe was found in a bottle dump near uh, Launston with the bottles dating to around 1830, making the pipe at least 190 years old. Mr. Watton was alerted to the pipe a few months ago after an avid collector of Tasmanian tiger paraphernalia brought the pipe, bought the pipe at auction. 
He has since gotten seconds opinion, second opinions on it. There is quite a buzz in the archaeology and academic community about this particular pipe, he said. It conjures up all these sorts of ideas about when it was made and who made it. The pipe's finder was an amateur bottle digger who found it sandwiched between two larger bottles at the base of a pit on private property near Lounston in 2016. The collector then sold the pipe as an unwanted item. Stephen Sleitholm from the International Thylacine Specimen Database snapped up the pipe at auction. The rendering of the thylacine, with his distinctive striped coat on the bowl of the pipe, does not appear to relate to any 19th century image that could have been used to assist in the modeling, Dr. Sleitholm said. So the somewhat naive artwork appears to be original. Consequently, the image is one of the earliest depictions of a thylacine we have on record. Adding to the mystery, the pipe also has a motif of a kookaburra on it. The bird was not introduced into Tasmania until 1902, suggesting the maker spent some time on the mainland before moving to Tasmania. Another theory is that the bird is actually a Tasmanian kingfisher, or a generic bird. The find will be published in an archaeological journal. And our last one is a mysterious metal skull discovered on Kittery Beach, and this is from Seacoast Online. This is written by Hadley Barndoller, and here we go, this is in Maine. Kittery, Maine, lying inconspicuously in the sand at Sea Point Beach Tuesday is what appeared to be a human skull, weathered, brown, and rusted. But the Kittery Police Department has assured it's definitely not a real human skull, but rather it's made of metal. Police Sergeant Josh Stewart on Wednesday said no one had reported the skull to the police, but officers went to check it out after a reporter inquired about it. It's a metal skull. You can see the machine marks on it, Stewart said. Nothing too extraordinary. The skull was discovered by Kittery resident Serena Galshaw, who on Tuesday went for a solo bike ride at sunset and stepped onto Sandpoint Beach to stretch for a few minutes. She said she knows the beach is closed to the public because of the coronavirus emergency. Something caught my eye in the sand, Galshaw said. I was sort of startled to realize it was a skull. I studied it, got closer, and it appeared to be rusty. So then I was like, okay, this must be cast out of metal. For a few seconds, Galshaw said she was definitely concerned. While investigating, Galshaw said that despite looking so realistic, she noted the, squall, the, squall, the skull was quite heavy. It was resting up in the soft sand by the grass, she said so it didn't seem plausible that it was washed up there during a storm, considering its significant weight. Galshaw wonders if the skull was perhaps placed there as a political statement, or to remind rogue beachgoers of the current world events. Perhaps this is a main version of the Florida man dressed up as the Grim Reaper, protesting that the beaches are reopening, she said. I mean, I don't know if, if this was an artist who did this, or this is from a science classroom, or some sort of weird Halloween patio decoration. Even if it wasn't meant to be a statement, it can be, Galshaw said, noting that she's worried that the economy and public spaces may be reopening too quickly. Stewart said the police department said it's putting the skull in short-term found property collection to see if anyone calls to claim it. And so there you go, the local headlines for the last episode of the season. So there we go, that is it. And we're going to finish this episode up with an interview from Jason Cowan. And 
most of you, at least with this show, are going, may not recognize the name, but you're going to recognize the voice and uh, be able to put a face with it. Because if you've watched Hellier, especially season two, Jason is the guy that they do the uh, UFO abduction experiment to. But it just so happens he also knew George Lutz later in life and uh, does, you know, he kind of carries on the tail now and does talks and all that. So I wanted to get him on the show and talk about some stuff and talk about some stuff we did. So I'm going to throw the interview in here and I will come back, of course, when it's done and we'll finish up episode 10 of season three. So enjoy this because this is a good one and uh, I'll be back. Um, my first question is always kind of the same for all these, and I because it's always an interesting one to see where everyone comes from. But what what sparked your interest in the paranormal just overall? Well, for me, I got I got into the paranormal quite frankly from Scooby Doo as a kid. Um, I was <laughs> super into. I mean, I was obsessed with that show. In fact, I used to tell my mom, you know, when I grow up, I want to be I want to be like Scooby and Shaggy. And then that really actually happened. Uh, I kind of segued from, I went from Scooby-Doo to Ghostbusters and, mm-hmm. and then Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And then it just grew and grew and grew and grew from there. So I, um, we went to, so I became friends with Greg Newkirk, who, you know, mm-hmm. does the, uh, the traveling museum of the occult and paranormal. And uh, he and I started together actually. And um, 1998, Greg asked me to, uh, help them pull a prank to scare, scare a friend of theirs in a cemetery. So I went into the the cemetery ahead of them, set up all this Blair Witch stuff. And we had such a good time messing with this kids. We're like, why don't we check out an actual real haunted place? And there's a small mining town in the middle of nowhere. It's a, it's abandoned. There's, there's really nothing left, but some foundations. Um, yeah, big one, you know, obviously plagues are huge right now. So, uh, oh, yeah, Plague hit there, uh, wiped out most of the town. The mining industry died. And so the cemetery is like, you know, the epitome of hauntedness. And, and the, the legend was always there when we were growing up. And we went and some stuff actually happened. And that kind of just, you know, set us down a, a trail of uh, paranormal intrigue that has never ended. I know. I thought I was I was chuckling because when you, you're in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. So you were like, "Oh, it's an abandoned mining town." I'm like, "Well, yeah, it's Pennsylvania. How many, how many abandoned mines and old towns are there in Pennsylvania? So many, so many of them, like every other town, right? But no, yeah, that's there. that's fun. What it's just like. Now that made me think of. So my grandfather, they lived across the street from the the cemetery here in town, and he he always told the story of them doing the exact same thing of just scaring some dude in the cemetery. And making him run all the way back to the back to the farmhouse and down the down the long driveway and scaring him. It was, but yeah. Um, so let's get into it. So I didn't know this. Like I said, I didn't know this till a couple few weeks ago. Like I always just knew you as you're the three D printing guy for the museum. And if anyone knows you from anything, it would be probably Hellier too, because you are the UFO hypnosis. Guinea pig. Yeah. Of a better term. Guinea pig. Uh, sacrificial lamb is more like Sacrificial it. lamb is a good one, yeah. But so how did that how did that all occur then? How did that relationship with George George Lutz begin? 
Okay, so um, in 2000, it was like 2003, uh, this production, so Ghost Hunters uh, Inc., um, you know, Greg and me and a bunch of our friends, Mm -hmm. uh, we had been going strong since from 98 on, and we had kind of built like a, you know, like a local following, and uh, we had a website that, you know, was, you know, we were posting crazy stuff all the time. Uh, all, you know, our ghost hunting adventures and a production company out of Seattle uh, contacted us, New Guild Pictures, and they wanted to do a documentary about our ghost hunting team. So they came out and they wanted us to go to, you know, places that had we had never really done before that would be like first time explorations for us. And we chose this place that I had heard of, you know, I originally I'd heard it on the bus riding to school. Uh, it's a church that's only used, you know, twice a year and, you know, supposedly it was very haunted, you know, people would see ghostly figures walking through the graveyard. Um, people would see lights going in the windows, even though there's no electricity. And the, the, but the story that really got me about the place was, uh, supposedly on one of the, you know, the, the, the bi-yearly services, uh, the minister went out to his car only person at the place went out to his car to get something, came back, and every Bible in the place while he was gone was turned to the same creepy passage in Revelation, something about the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And that story stuck with me. Like I was, I thought it was thing. So I was like, why don't we go there for uh, the for the documentary? And you know, we all agreed, and we went. And within seconds of getting inside the place, stuff started happening. You could hear it stomping and running around upstairs. You could hear it walking up and down the stairs. I mean, we had never seen anything like this. I mean, this was like, not only was this happening, because I mean, you know how ghost hunting is, like you hear a noise, you never, you're never sure, 100% sure what you've heard. But this mm-hmm. was, you know, six of us, including a cameraman, hearing this. And it was stomping and reacting and... All of a sudden, we looked, and it has an octagonal pulpit, which is kind of in the center of the built room. And this green mist started to form on the pulpit, and everybody, we all could see it. And it started coming down. And all of a sudden, the camera started going crazy. It kept turning itself off. It like, and it, it, the camera was trying to focus on the mist, but it couldn't, like, for some reason, it wouldn't just wouldn't focus, even though he was manually trying to adjust it. It just wasn't letting it happen. And then all of a sudden, the cameraman said he felt like he was being choked. He, he, I mean, it was all videoed. It's in the it's in the, the movie. And we had to get him out of the place. And as soon as we got him out, everything was fine. But he, you know, it was just, and then we were obsessed with the place. So we went back another time. And, you know, we'd never, I mean, this thing was reacting on command. And like a haunting that reacting that way was, was just something we'd never experienced before. You know, it was like, it was like performing for lack of a better term. And at that point, I said, you know, Jesus could kick your ass. I actually said that. And this book from the top of the building flew down and slammed on the floor directly in front of us. I mean, it flew, there was nobody up there. Then they like there shouldn't have happened. And like being the brave guys we were, as soon as it hit, we, you know, hauled ass out of there. And uh, so we were supposed to promote the movie at a, um, a, a horror convention and uh, in Reistertown, Maryland, Maryland called Horrifines. And uh, so back then, you know, we were using Matt was before the GPS. So we were using MapQuest to plan our route. And Bill, one of the other guys in the group, and I stopped on the way back from we had gone to there was a local diner to plan our route. 
And he's like, you want to stop at the church on the way back in? And of course, I was like, yeah. He's like, let's go without flashlights. And I'm like, absolutely not without, without flashlights. So I brought mine, but he wouldn't. And he made me bust it on me the whole time. And we, you know, we opened the church door and all of a sudden we could hear it stomping. And like, was it within seconds of opening the door? And inside of the door to the right, um, is a wall that's kind of at this point just a graffiti wall where people sign like an autograph like we've been here kind of thing and so he wanted me to shine my flashlight on the wall to you know look at some of the names see who else had been there kind of thing and as I stepped inside the door to do that we heard something come down the stairs and all of a sudden something broadsided me like it felt like I was being like tackled and I, you know, I'm five, five. I hit the wall at like six foot, roughly right. At, like Bill's like six foot. So it was like right at his eye level. I hit the wall. I, you know, blacked out at that point. Like I went into like a state of shock. Bill had to get me out of there. And I, and like, so I was like, that's it. No, no more. I'm not doing this stuff anymore. I want nothing to do with this anymore. Mm-hmm. I was done with the paranormal. Um, but at that point, I also committed to, you know, going to, you know, promote the movie. So we went to the convention. I was like afraid of everything at that point. And we happened to be walking by a booth where George Lutz of the Amityville Horror was sitting. And, you know, I had heard of the movie, you know, I'd heard of the book, didn't really know a lot about it. I definitely yeah. didn't know his name. And so I was like looking at some of the stuff he had on the table, you know, memorabilia from the house, that kind of thing. And, you know, books that's our, and, and I said, so you're George Lutz, huh? And he said, yeah. And he, you know, he shook my hand. He said, who are you? And I told him, I said, yeah, we're here promoting our ghost hunting movies. Like, oh, really? You do that? I'm like, well, I did, but I don't now because uh, (laughs) I was violently tossed into a wall because it's all fun and games. So somebody throws us a fat kid and Mm -hmm. uh, that day it threw the fat kid. And so he kind of chuckled. And he's like, and I was like, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. He's like, so that's it, how you're just going to wrap it up. You're going to let that, you know, beat you. And uh, I was like, uh, did you hear the part where I was thrown into a wall? So, yeah, I am done. And he he was like, what? So he's like, you seem to have this gift for humor. You know, you could use that, you know, to combat this stuff. And you could do a lot of good within within the paranormal world. And I was like. I was mildly intrigued, like, why he was saying, like, well, where am I supposed to learn to do that? And he's like, I'll teach you. And from that point, he took me under his wing. Uh, you know, I went to Penn State with him, like, on a, uh, to a horror convention. I traveled all around Virginia. They were doing a documentary that eventually they intended to release. Um, and so, we like, we did cases all over North Carolina, South Carolina, West Virginia, Virginia. And, you know, we just tra- we traveled all these crazy places dealing with Amityville-related cases. Hmm. I guess I didn't know. Like I didn't realize that Lutz did all that. Like he did investigations and he didn't until life. the last couple of years of his life. Yeah. He huh. it. Um, you know, and it's not something that's super popular. Uh, you know, you know, not a lot of not a ton of people know that he was doing it. Um, he just, you know, he was more interested in helping people. It wasn't so much that he was like just checking out places for the sake of checking them out. Uh, he, but he, you know, if we went someplace, there was a reason for it. Gotcha interesting i didn't know i did not know that so because of him did you get to meet like anyone else did you were you able to meet the whole family the warrens anybody else associated oh, oh i had met it? the warrens several times i oh really uh it, it's hilarious right up until you know she stopped touring whenever i would see lorraine she always called me josh and like i corrected her a million times i'm like it's jason but 
Yeah, it was close. I mean, it was close, but I mean, she was a very sweet man. I never met mm-hmm. Ed. I, I had met, I met only her. Um, I met originally at Penn State at Unicon through George. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm pretty good friends with Christopher uh, Quarantino, a.k.a. Lutz. Um, yeah. And uh, I know of the daughters, but I've never, you know, had much interaction with them. Yeah, that's weird. Like, yeah, I hear about, like, because Chris had his own documentary. You know, you hear about Chris all the time, but you never really hear about, like, anything from Missy or, you know, like. She doesn't. They're, they're in the, they're, they're all the, the three daughters, as far as I as know, they are still all involved in the clergy. So they don't, they don't mm. dabble stuff. Gotcha. I see. They okay. all live in Las, I don't know if Missy lives in Las Vegas, but Gabrielle, Gabby and Noel both do. I'm pretty sure live in, live in either Arizona or Las Vegas still. Okay. Hmm. The thing that like always, the whole Amityville topic, as you, you a lot of it seems to be a bit of like a quagmire. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of defi- decisive books and documentaries. It's like you can't read one book or watch one documentary that is kind of gray. You know what I mean? It's always no, like there's a lot of hands in the in the and there's the, a lot of yeah hands. In there's that a lot soup. of hands in the Amityville soup for sure. So. What, coming from you, what do you think is the best kind of explanation for it all? Where do you come come to it at? Well, you as think somebody some who's kind of... exaggerated? Do you think some of it was not, you know, just... What's think, Jason's take on the whole thing? I think that the movies and the book were made um, with some, some creative licensing. Um, so I. I think some of the most terrifying stuff that happened to the family, they never talked about it all. No, with not even the books, they, it was just too traumatizing. I think what actually happened to that family was 10 times worse than anything they ever talked about. Cause like whatever happened that last night, George would never talk about publicly, uh, like, like in great detail, especially whatever happened to the boys and Christopher mm-hmm. has yet to tell his side. And in fact, George w- would say, you know, it's not my place to tell their their section of the story. That's theirs. They'll do it one day if they so choose. Yeah. He um, did. So, uh, you know, he George was very adamant that, you know, there was a lot of other stuff going on and it followed them. Like and, and, and that's the other thing, you know, people think that, you know, the family fled in the middle of the night. They left the next day. They you know that, that last night was it for them, but they never intended to leave the house for good. They wanted to get it fixed and and then move back in and unfortunately it just you know it didn't work out that way and you know weird stuff like once you open the amityville door and you go down it and i from personal experiences once you open that door it recognizes you it remembers you and it does not let you stray from it i've tried to get out of it a million times my wife when i moved in here um when we moved into this house and we got together did not believe in paranormal activity she does now um, anytime I tour a college, uh, and talking about Amityville stuff, it happens stuff. Something happens. The first thing that happened to her with we have a big, like cast iron leaf that hangs on the wall. It's decorative, mm-hmm. very heavy and never moves. I had done a lecture at a college about Amityville, got home that night and it flew 12 feet across the, the room in front of her and Anytime I talk about it, and probably tonight because I'm doing this interview, I will have something happen. Did you tell her? Did you tell her that you're doing this interview? I did not or mention did she... it was Amity before. I didn't. I did. I honestly didn't tell her because of that. 
You'll have so, to let me know. You'll have to let me know if. Uh, yeah, oh, I if will. Anything, I to, uh, <laughs> if anything goes down, you'll every time. Well, one time I did a I did a talk about Amityville at um, a Parafest. It was called Parafest. It was in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, at a, at a casino event that they did, and um, I was in the hotel after the event. You know, everybody, you know, the paranormal events, people always party hardy. I had, you know, gone back early because I was exhausted. And I was laying in bed and the bathroom started screaming, like just these screaming, the screaming was coming out of the bathroom. And I was like, holy shit. I'm like, you just never know what's going to happen with it. Um, It doesn't like me justifying the family. Uh, anytime I speak highly of the family or, you know, that kind of thing, they, it tends a tendency to push back. Yeah. Cause it's always kind of, you know, people always go, well, it's not haunted cause no one's ever experienced anything since they left, which I don't know if that's, I've heard, you know, you hear it once again, it's all a bunch of quagmire hearsay stuff about like, did it, do you know of anything like, I don't know, real or anything tangible that has happened to anybody in the house since they've left? Or do you think it's more of like, it's not the house? Maybe I don't think, I, I think it, I think it started at the house and I think the property is still haunted. Um, guy, I went, I mean, I went there. I was going to ask the next me. question. Have you been there? I have. Um, I went in the middle of the night, um, in uh, like a Wednesday. Cause it was like, if any time cops are not going to be here to stop you, it's going to be a middle of the week at like oh, yeah, yeah. late. So we went, that's when we went and I got, cause I, 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 I kind of wanted to, cause I've heard the stories, you know, George's stories thousands of times. I mean, I heard him talk so many times. And so I wanted to kind of see everything. And I was like fascinated that number one, the houses are so close together. You know, they make it seem like in the oh, movies yeah. that they're far, far, far apart. No, they no. are next door. There's no reason that the neighbors shouldn't. Somebody on that street should have heard gunshots, especially that many gunshots. Especially at night, you know, like, because, yeah, I looked at Street View on it. And you're right. Like, it's really hard because, you know, like the, the address has been changed and stuff. Yeah. So and that, like, and the house is altered. And like, yeah, they're, they're, somebody should have heard something. Oh, agreed. Yeah. Especially at night, um, nothing else going on, you know? And so like, that was one of the things I was doing there and I had gotten down between the house to the left and, and, you know, the Amityville house. And I was walking down there. <laughs> Nobody was living there when I was there. It was in uh-huh. between owners at the time. Okay. So I was like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this now. Right. And, um, so I was walking down through there and I forgot that the river is directly behind it and somebody was in a boat down there and shined a bright oh. light on me so i like panicked because i was like what is that but it really was just a guy in a boat after like i calmed down like because i just wasn't expecting but i was just like but then when i got to the other side of the house there was a whispering that i i to this day i can't really i don't know where it was coming from i didn't see anybody you know in the bushes i was looking and i can't prove that it wasn't somebody but i did hear right. a whisper. Could you make it out or was it just kind of like, you know, it was like, like, it was like, you just like in, in unintelligible, noise. like a yeah. noise. Yeah. And then, then actually another group of people pulled up and were like taking pictures of the house. And then I left and I was like, eh, it's not worth getting in trouble here. <laughs> right. 
Right. I don't want to get arrested, but I don't want to get arrested out of state either. No, for definitely some, not. For some light trespassing. Um, <laughs> um, so this is a question that's always been on my mind ever since uh, Chris's documentary. Do you know or did you think that was was George into the occult like ever? Or is that just like a a bit, you know, what 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 do you think? Or is that a touchy subject? It's it's an uncomfortable subject for me, but I'll, oh, yeah. I'll, talk, I'll talk about it anyway. Um, do I think he dabbled in some stuff? Yes, I do. Um, I think a lot was, of people in the seventies did. And yeah. uh, you know, you know, he he was, you know, he called it transcendental meditation, but I, I there was more to it, and I think that. <sighs> I think between I, obviously not between you and I. This is an interview, and this is going out. So I can cut um, it out. But I'm recording tonight, so if you want to cut uh, it out, you gotta let me know in like the next four hours. No, no. I, I mean, I think that you know, I think that he did dabble. I think that things got a little too intense for them. And I mean, the guy slept with a rosary in his in his clenched in his hands, and that was with no you know cameras and not for show, you know. Not when any he would think anybody would see. Uh, you know, that's not something like we had keys to his hotel room, so he would go in and take a nap, and he would never know if we were even going to come in the room uh, to get like equipment or whatever. So like for him to be sleeping that way, you know, he would put blessing stuff around the outside of the bed. So I mean, he was protecting himself, right, for a reason. And like that far out, there's something after you if you believe that. Like I, I saw the guy's face change you know i i saw the guy start glowing and so like that's not just an ordinary garden variety thing i mean that people don't just normally glow um it freaked me out so bad that was in fact that was the last time i saw him in person i continued to talk to him after that but i was so freaked out by the glowing that i we were in north carolina he had called me to talk to me about my dealings with the paranormal and my fear and we were sitting in a hotel room and he, you know, he, you know, asked Timmy and I to come in the room and he said, you know, I want to teach you these, these techniques. And like, he started to do, I guess a sort of meditation and I'm sitting there and watching and he started glowing and like, I'm looking at Tim and Tim's looking at me like, yes, I see what you're seeing. And I'm like, freaking out i raised my hand really sheepishly and i'm like uh, i don't want to interrupt but uh you're glowing right now and he's like oh you can see that right now and i was like uh yeah and that that's not normal um that's not <laughs> so he would like he would like and he you know he's like that's an aura you can control them you can do this with them you can do that with them but i was so freaked out that i drove 10 hours uh, at eight o'clock at night through the night to get back home to Pennsylvania because I was just so completely just I I've never seen anything like that before. Wow, that's not what the, that's not the I was not expecting all of that actually. I always figured that like maybe he dabbled like a lot of people did in the seventies and you know I don't want to like I don't think he was some dark black magician but no no you I know don't you know so there was just a lot I mean it was the seventies you had all this stuff coming back yoga and chaos magic and all the you know was kind of the thing so i always wondered i always wanted to get someone else's like perspective on that question other than 
I, I, I oh. do. I do think that he, you know, I think he more than dabbled at one point. I think that, you know, he was practicing some stuff and it got out of hand. Hmm. Interesting. Where am I at here? Because actually, we've actually answered a couple without asking them. So now I got to figure out, <laughs> figure out which one. My bad. No, no, that's cool. That's cool. Um, so out of all this, like with your relationship, your friendship with George, what do you think was the best thing that came from it? Like, um, he was. So my my father and I were never close. Um, you know, my dad was a very emotionally abusive guy. He just, you know, we were not. We're not friends. And George stepped in as a surrogate dad in a, in a, at a time when I was, you know, in some pretty dark places. Mm-hmm. And so he was funny. And that's the, that's the thing that never gets captured uh, in any of the movies. Like, they never capture how funny he was. I mean, he was just constantly pulling pranks. I mean, he convinced an entire, uh, like audience of people at a book signing that i was the original actor from the adams family movie and i played pugsley adams so like all these people were you know asking for my autograph and i'm like completely confused as to why because i'd never been on tv or anything at that point and and so like i asked this kid i'm like who do you think that i am and he's like aren't you pugsley adams from the adams family i was like no who told you that he's like oh george let's told me that so like he the guy was like manipulating one other time <laughs> How many autographs um, did you sign? Like 10 or 12. It was, you know. <laughs> Before you were just, like, wait a minute. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I thought maybe at first it was like, oh, they know I'm with George. So they're just, you know, you know, grasping at some sort of frame straw. But after a while, I was like, this just isn't right. It's like, this is not, not normal. And uh, I know at one point, you know, George uh, had snuck into my hotel room. I told them I was leaving to go get food and I would be back. And they used my extra key to get into my room, and they duct tape a um, speaker underneath my underneath the 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 cabinet in the in the shower in the bathroom, and they were whispering "get out" while I was showering, and I kept hearing the voice. And the last time, the only reason I knew that it was them was because they forgot to hit the button quick enough, and I went bloop, and I was like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> I looked under the sink under the sink, and I'm like. And here's the the haunting I'm having. So like he messed with me that kind of thing all the time. Oh, that's great. So do you still give give talks? Probably not like right at this moment, due to some due to some incidents that have happened. Yeah. But yeah. like, do you still do that from time to oh, time? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Whenever uh, Halloween's obviously the biggest season for right, it. You right. know, I'm going to be doing. Uh, phenomenology you know whenever whenever I, I don't seek it out because I, you know my i had my wife and i had uh, twin sons last year and we have a four-year-old and like i said anytime i talk about amityville it shows up so i due to their births and my wife had a stroke uh she has a heart condition as she had a stroke from the stress of the birth of the twins and so we spent a year rehabbing so it's just it's just irresponsible on my part to do it a ton. Gotcha. You know, I do it, you know, whenever I get the itch or if somebody requests it or if it's for a good cause, um, I'll do it. But I I don't actively seek it out. Um, and then obviously you've seen what happened whenever I hang out with Greg Newkirk. So, uh, mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. so anytime haunting stuff, my wife just would prefer I stay away from it if at all possible. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I think... That I think that about one more one more thing. I just want to give you a chance. Is there anything you want to plug or 
I know, don't you, you, you run a blog now and stuff, don't you? I do, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a dad, like, you know, pop culture right. blog, it's called Dadpocalypse uh, now, uh, you can find it at www.dadpocalypse.com, and, you know, it's just kind of my, sometimes some haunting stuff pops up, but, you know, it's, you know, superhero stuff and nerd stuff, it's funny, mm-hmm. it's with my kids, you know, being crazy and and all kinds of stuff like that so check it out it's a lot of fun um i had to intend to do more a little more haunted stuff with it i mean i've got you know a million resources for that right i'll make sure to put that in the show notes so people can i appreciate get to it. that yep because it was when i was trying to find it, it was like i wonder if he's on twitter so i just searched your name and i was like i think this is him but all it is is an icon <laughs> so i had to like go through your media to be like oh there he is okay make sure yeah. it was the Make sure it was the right guy. But no, yeah, um, I, I just really started. I have had Twitter for forever, but I only ever used it to read, you know, other tweets. I never really tweeted lurking, a lot myself. Lurking around. Yeah, creeping. <laughs> All right. That is a wrap on this episode, on this season. Three seasons in the bag already. 30 episodes. I don't know how many hours of content. Uh, done and many many more hours of content to come and actually before i get too far into the end of the show here uh, i do want to talk about a couple of things that happened tonight so jason was talking about how when he has a tendency to talk about this subject things happen to uh, both parties and some things did happen tonight so the first one maybe just might be me but when recording that first segment about the haunting i was getting extremely pissed off about it and really, really angry. Like, not frustration, which is what I normally feel when things aren't going well, but, like, pure anger, like, to the point where it's like, I need to stop doing this for the night and pick it up tomorrow. But I soldiered on, and I got through it, and the second part was, like, the most relaxed I'd ever been doing the show, which was, I thought, kind of weird, just a weird vibe, but, once again, might just be me. The other thing that happened, I don't remember exactly when it happened, but... It was during recording that first segment. Um, I took a little break. I stopped it. I got some water or something. And I just had my headphones on. And so the mic is just... I wasn't recording. just had my headphones on. So the mic was picking up like the ambient noise around the house. And uh, I heard voices for like five seconds as if someone had turned the TV on. And it was just loud enough where I could hear it but not make out what was being said. And no one else is up. There are no TVs on. My phone is in airplane mode and do not disturb mode, so it didn't make any interference. There were no cars going by with the radios on at the moment, so it wasn't that. It was just, I can't, I don't have no reason where they came, but I heard them in the headphones. I don't even know if I would have heard them had I not had headphones on. So that was a little freaky. That was a little unexpected, but some stuff did happen. So I just wanted to say that real quick and, uh, and it was yeah so this was an interesting night to to say to say the least but yeah uh, a few things so season 4 is coming up i'm going to take my obligatory week extra break even though i kind of took one earlier whatever i'll do what i want and uh we'll come back with season 4 so some things about season 4 i am going to start patreon season 4 my plan is to launch on July 1st. That way I can uh, do it at the beginning of the month and I have a nice month-long rotation 
to keep track of rewards and know what I need to send out monthly. Um, I'll get into all of this the first episode of Season 4. I will let everyone know what you will get, what the tiers will be, you know, what the pledges are, all that great stuff. But that is coming Season 4, July 1st, the Patreon for Small Town Secrets with a... Did, you, did anyone hear the cat just go... He's being very honorary. He wants to play Laser Pointer, and he won't leave me alone now. So might have to get out of here and play Laser Pointer with the cat for a little bit before I go back to bed. But besides the cat, that is Patreon. That is coming once again. If you have a small town secret that you would like to share, a Hondi in the story, a true crime thing, a cryptid, UFO, any of that stuff, you know so many ways to get it to me. Go to stscast.com. Scroll down the bottom of the page. There is an email form that you can fill out with your experience. Yeah, that will get it to me and we can get on the show. I can just read it. You can give me a news article. We can set up a Skype interview or whatever uh, like we did with Jason and get it on here. You can get at me on social media. Uh, Twitter and Facebook are both at STScast. Twitter is where I'm most active. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram at STScast.com. Dot gram. Uh, so give me a follow on any of those if you want to get at me with an experience or you just want to hear updates about the show or just all the stupid other crap that I post. That is one way to do it. There is a, a subreddit for the show, which I'm really going to try to get more uh, traction with on Season 4, where if you want to just get on there and join that and leave a uh, story so that maybe we can all have a little discussion on it or whatnot that can also get it on the show so many ways to do it so many ways to get at me other stuff on the site there is show notes for this episode and every episode there are pictures for this episode and every episode under the episodes tab you can also find merch so you want to buy a shirt a sticker a coffee mug any of that great jazz hit the merch tab and that will take you to the store to do some of that which will of course help out the show and uh i want to thank everyone that listens everyone that engages with the show in any way that you do it whether you are buying merch or just tweeting or just telling people about the show it all helps the show grow it all makes it all so exciting to continue the do and see see what i can do with this as we go on and i greatly appreciate it so if you've been listening since episode one, thank you. If this is your first episode, I hope it's at least your second episode, because this is a two-parter. you got to go back and listen to that first part if this is your first episode. But thank you nonetheless. And the best way, really, to make the show grow, two things that you can do. One, please leave a rating and review, a five-star rating and review on iTunes. That's kind of the, the biggest metric one out there right now. Or on your podcatcher of choice. It helps you get the show noticed. It helps it uh, float up to the top a little bit. But the other thing that you can do is just tell a friend. If every one of us gets one other person to listen to the show, that automatically doubles the audience. And it's the easiest thing that you really can do to help the show grow. Big semi going by, making a lot of noise. It's weird. We it's a small town, 200 people. We don't get a lot of semis coming through at 5.13 in the morning. But um, that's it. That is this season. Thanks, everyone, once again. 
I'm going to say this. This is what you had to look forward to for episode one of season four. I don't normally do this, but I'm, it's locked in. I'm going to be doing this story. So I have one of the most bat shit crazy stories that I've ever done on this show. I am talking doppelganger wives. I am talking samurai swords. I am talking severed alien heads in the freezer. It's a wild story, and that is what is going to be opening up season four of Small Town Secrets. So until then, um, actually, let me let me pull up calendar real quick, and I'll give everyone the date of when everything should be coming back. So today is the 22nd. Should be coming back on the 12th of June will be when season four will start. So until then, remember everyone, every town has a secret. What is yours? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.